this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. And this week we are looking at Parshat Toldot, uh, which is the beginning of the story of Yaakov, the third of our forefathers. And it tells the story, not necessarily from the, the beginning of his life in that it occupies a lot of his life, um, but it's definitely the, the first of a series of Parshas that are about his life. And it's kind of an ugly Parsha in that respect, and it does not reflect well on Yaakov. And something that's interesting is that every time Yaakov appears in the Parsha, he appears next to Esau, his brother. So let's just review the main three instances of Yaakov and Esav appearing in this Parsha. And we'll talk about what happens to the moral progression or regression of Yaakov over the course of the Parsha and what that means for the rest of his life. So in the first, the first time we meet Yaakov and Esav, his brother, and the Parsha is when they are still in utero. Rivka, their mother, senses that that the boys are struggling somehow in her uterus, in her body, and so she goes to seek out God. And so here we don't know exactly what the issue is. Of course, there are lots of midrashim, and and we don't have the sense that one is right and the other is wrong, but rather that we know that Yaakov, his entire life is going to be defined by conflict because already in utero he's in conflict with his brother. And then the second major scene where we see them is with the lentils and the birthright when Yasav comes in famished from the field and, and Yaakov sells him the, the does the exchange of the bowl of soup in exchange for the birthright. And that really doesn't reflect terribly well on Yaakov either. Um, yeah, it's a it's a deal in that Esav agrees to it, but it kind of seems like he's capitalizing on Esav's hunger um, and, and really trying to to make uh, to to get a lot from giving not giving very little. And it really signifies that something is off in this relationship, because normally who can't spare a bowl of soup for their twin brother? Why is it that Yaakov feels the need to take something major from Esau just in exchange for some soup? So that's our second story that really doesn't bode well. And the third is when the 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 climax of the negativity of the relationship of Yaakov and Esav, when Yaakov pretends to be Esav and steal a, steals Esav's blessings by deceiving their father. And clearly, as we said, that's really the, the worst of the three. Um, we begin with in utero a judgment-free judgment conflict. And then earlier in their adult life, we have Yaakov really doesn't look very good taking the soup, taking the birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup. And now we're straight up got Yaakov being lying and outright stealing something that belongs to Esav um, and deceiving their father in the process. And it's an action that, that breaks up the family permanently. And once that happens, Yaakov has to flee and they're never all together again. So it's clear that, as we said, Yaakov's life, his early life, this Parsha is plagued by negativity and negativity that grows stronger and stronger. The more the Parsha progresses, the worse Yaakov is acting from a moral perspective. And we'll address whether there's unified agreement on that, certainly. But if you're willing to look straightly at the Pshat, that really is, Yaakov is just getting worse and worse as he gets older, vis-a-vis his twin brother, Esav. And so I wanted to look at the precise moment where Yaakov reaches the point where he's actually able to steal those blessings and lie to his father outright. 
in this third scene. So Rivka has heard Yitzchak tell Esav, go catch me some, you know, go get me some food, go hunt and get me some food, and I'm going to give you the blessings. She knows, uh-oh, Yitzchak is about to give Esav the big blessings. That can happen. They have to go to Yaakov. And so she grabs Yaakov and stages this ordeal Well, she'll prepare the food. And he has to dress up um, and, and go tell Yitzchak that it's him, that he is Esav, and he's got to take the blessings. And Yaakov here, at first, he's very hesitant. He's uncertain. He actually looks good in this beginning interaction with his mother because he's saying, well, wait a minute. How How is my father going to know that I'm Esav? After all, I'm smooth and Esav is Harry, he looks like he doesn't want to do it. And Rivka looks like definitely much worse. Again, speaking about a shot, a simplistic reading um, from a moral perspective, Rivka looks much worse because she is the one orchestrating this where Yaakov is really a, 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 a very wary participant. But she dresses him up in the furs and says, nope, you're going to go in and he will feel that you're Harry and that's what we're going to do. And then Yaakov has to reach the point where he is going to take ownership of this narrative, of the stealing of the blessings, of pretending that he is Esav. And it happens in chapter 27, verse 19, where he goes unto his father, uh, to Father Yitzchak, who of course is blind and cannot see. And the Pasuk says, Vayomer Yaakov el Aviv, Anochi Esav Bechorecha. Yaakov said to his father, I am Esav, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Pray, sit up and eat of my game that you may give me your innermost blessing. So Yaakov now, Rivka can no longer be in the room planning this and making it happen. Yaakov is the one who has to walk into his father and say face to face to him, yep, I am Esav, here I am to get the blessings. He can't rely on his mother to do it for him. And the words come right out of his mouth. Anochi Esav Bechorecha. I am Esav, your firstborn. And once those words come out of Yaakov's mouth, the rest of the lie comes freely, right? I've done what you told me. Come eat of my game that you may give me your blessing. And then Yitzchak is a little uncertain and Yaakov continues to lie to convince Yitzchak that it is indeed Esav, when of course really it's Yaakov. So something about those words of him being able to get those words out of his mouth is what enables him to just unleash all of the lies and be able to come in and own the position of the son who is pretending to be the other son in order to lie to their father to steal his brother's blessings. It is very, very messy. But it also, as we said, is what gives Yaakov the confidence to do so. And once he does it, everything else in his life falls apart. So how, what do we do with this? Yaakov is one of our avot, right? He's, as we said, he's the, the third of our avot of our forefathers, of the people we look to and, and, and elevate and speak about in the most revering terms. So how are we going to understand what happened here? There and there, we just we can't just like let this go. And I think it's really interesting to see the different ways that the commentaries and rabbis and scholars over history have looked at that. Now, so we're just going to overview. There are three possibilities of ways to understand what Yaakov did here, and I just want to provide an overview of them. The first is that nope, Yaakov didn't actually lie. Rashi is citing a midrash that comes up with this idea that you have these three words, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, I am Esav, your firstborn, and that actually there was punctuation involved to stick in a comma. And Yaakov didn't lie. In fact, he says, Anochi Esav Bechorecha. 
right? That Yaakov says, it is me. Esav is your firstborn. And then boom, like that, just stick in a comma or a pause. And Yaakov hasn't lied. In fact, he's telling the truth. Now the pros of this approach is that it clears him morally, right? No lie. Good. Boom, boom. You're done. The cons are that it doesn't really fit into the text because he clearly is lying. The rest of his pasuk, he's lying. And then the next couple of pasukim, when he's tricking his father, he's still lying. So I, it's, it's an interesting take, but it also really does not fit textually in the text. And of course, there are vast moral problems with saying, no, actually, in fact, when someone is lying, they, they weren't really lying. They were just telling the truth. It just didn't look like the truth. And anyone living in the political environment, especially in America of 2020, knows exactly how problematic and how dangerous it is to talk like that. So our second approach is that he did, in fact, lie. But it wasn't bad because it was a necessary lie. And that's what the Ibn Ezra and many others say. And they point to the fact that all of our vote lied. Avram lies about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife, but he does so in order to save his own life. There are certain times you have to lie in order to preserve your life or save some other very serious situation or to make extraordinary things happen. And so, yeah, he was willing to lie here in order to make sure that Esav didn't get the blessings of the firstborn and that Yaakov got them instead. Now, the pros of this are at least, well, okay, it acknowledges that he did lie, um, and it makes sense, and also it clears him morally, right? Because it says, well, yeah, he lied, but it, but it wasn't a big problem. So it kind of easy, it makes it much easier, much more comfortable to read the text. Now, the cons are that this is a very dangerous thing to say, because who gets to decide which lie is worth telling? If the lesson you derive from this is you can lie in extraordinary circumstances, well, everyone's going to have a different definition of extraordinary circumstances. And it, the subjectivity of this can get quite dangerous. Now, the third way of interpreting this is to say, yeah, Yaakov did lie. And it was really bad that he lied. And this lie followed him his whole life. This is something that is discussed by some scholars. Nechama Leibovitz has a piece on it. There's a Midrash that, that addresses this, the fact that Yaakov, Yaakov's early life, as we said in this Parsha, is defined by lying. And it's that trickery, that lying that follows him the rest of his life. And the rest of his life is plagued by trickery. He runs away to Lavan, and Lavan then tricks him with switching Rachel and Leah. And then he's got all these children with Yosef and the brothers and everyone is lying and trying to deceive one another and and the the the, the coat, the Ktona Pasim and the blood and all that. Like every the rest of his life is 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 lying is an essential part of that trickery, deception, that deceit haunts him for the rest of his life. And if you're gonna say, well, everything that happens in the rest of his life. Um, he doesn't even have a peaceful death. The, the Avram and Yitzhak both do. And he just, every, the rest of his life is just exhausting and dramatic and terrible. And a lot of people say, well, that all ties back to the fact that he was willing to deceive his father and his brother, right? What he did in his early life will follow him for the rest of his life. Now, I find this opinion hugely appealing. The pros of this is that, well, there's textual evidence, right? And it makes sense. And it solves the moral problem because it doesn't allege that what Yaakov did was moral, right? We may embrace it. It feels, it, it's a nice option to say, well, yeah, he did lie. It, it, it doesn't have, you don't have to betray the text in any way in order to say that. But we also, even though it is a great answer and it's a very interesting answer, 
we need to step us, take a step back and think there are cons of this also as well. Now, the first is a more less dramatic one, which is that the text doesn't necessarily actually outright condemn Yaakov's sin. It does kind of accept it because he does get to keep the blessings. You think if he really did something that egregious, God or someone else should try to undo it, but he does indeed get to keep them. But really there's a bigger, I think, con to this from a moral perspective and from a lesson perspective for what we can take from it, which is that it's actually pretty vindictive we really, people love to see someone else do something wrong and then be plagued by it for the rest of their lives. It feels really good to watch the downfall of other people. And I don't mean that just in an evil sense. We all have that, right? Like it feels, it, it, it's a good feeling. It makes us feel better about ourselves to look at Yaakov and say, well, yeah, I, you know, he, that guy who did that terrible thing, don't worry. He never was able to escape it. But we should also take a step back for a minute when we are drawn to explanations like that and say, hmm, what is it about this explanation that I'm drawn to? And what does it say about me? Now, I say that because this explanation really doesn't actually leave much room for forgiveness for Yaakov. It makes sense textually. It's pretty clear that trickery follows Yaakov for the rest of his life. But what about forgiveness? What about the room for change? It's kind of advertising the idea that if you do something, it haunts you for the rest of your life which is something I think we often believe in America and something that we, we often want to believe because we want to believe in justice in the world. But it also doesn't make any room for the idea of forgiveness. And I have to wonder, what would Yaakov's life have been like if he ever had found room to forgive and to forget the past? And I point all of this out to say, it's kind of funny for me to be pointing this out because I think that Yaakov's story is of someone who is always going to be haunted by this by this trick, by what he did, and never able to forget it and never able to move past it. He spends the rest of his life running away. First, he has to run away from his home and run away to Lavan. And then he's got to run away from Lavan because Lavan, he and Lavan are tricking each other. And then in order, but in order to get back home to his father, he's got to first encounter Esau, his brother who he's haunt, still so obviously haunted by, by memories of what happened so many years before. And when he finally meets Esav, Esav welcomes him warmly. But Yaakov doesn't trust him, and Yaakov continues to run from him. Why? All because Yaakov does not have any concept of forgiveness and of moving on from any conflict that has ever happened. He runs away from it rather than confronts it. He really does not understand forgiveness in a way that Esav is so obviously ready to move on, but Yaakov can never escape his past and Yaakov can never forgive himself and forgive other people. And I think that therefore it behooves us to be honest, first of all, about Yaakov. Yes, he did lie. It is undeniable. He lied to his father directly. But then we shouldn't just look at what happens to him the rest of his life and say, yeah, he got his. Rather, we should look at his life and wonder, man, how could his life have the tragedy and the frustration and the exhaustion of his life have looked different if he had just been ready, ready to apologize, to forgive, and to move on? And that is really, I think, where the lesson that we should take from the story of Yaakov's life is, is not in, oh yeah, bad people or people who screw up gets what's coming to them for the rest of their lives, but rather people who screw up and don't have the language or the capacity 
to reconcile that with themselves and with the people they hurt are the real ones that tragedy befalls. And no matter, virtually no matter what you do in your life, there's always a way to find forgiveness and reconciliation as long as you're willing to confront that in yourself. Good Shabbos.